Well, good morning. Uh, I want to take just a minute to let everybody know how thankful that I am for having been given the gift of my sabbatical. Three months away was a wonderful time for Jennifer and me, and I was sent into my sabbatical with a whole lot of prayer. I think I was prayed over six separate times that I would be rest, that I would have rest and renewal. And I can say unequivocally that those many prayers were answered in full. I am rested and renewed, and I also gained a great deal of clarity about many things during those three months. But I will say this, it is good to be back. It is good to be back. Again, I want to thank you for giving me the time away. I don't think I'll ever be able to fully express my gratitude for that time. I also don't think it's coincidental at all that I've come back from my sabbatical during our Carry On series, um, this series where we're looking back at 30 years of grace, while at the same time looking forward to the future, looking forward to carrying on into the next 30 years of grace. And we've been doing this by looking this looking back and this looking forward by taking stock of some important lessons that are found in the two New Testament books of First and Second Timothy. As Kylie said earlier, uh, these two books, and we call them books, but they're letters. They're not really books, but we call them books. And they were personal letters written by the Apostle Paul to a young man named Timothy. And Timothy had recently been appointed as the pastor of, a fledge, of the fledgling church in Ephesus. And it was, by the way, it was a church that Paul himself had planted. Amy and Barry, in their first two sermons in this series, gave us a good deal of contextual background for the books of Timothy. And if you haven't had a chance to listen to those, I would recommend that you do. Um, but one thing I do want to point out before we move into looking at some verses in 1 Timothy is this, that the two books of 1 and 2 Timothy by Paul and also the letter that Paul wrote that we call Titus, those uh, three books have long been lumped together and called the pastoral epistles. And it's easy to see why Paul why, why that would be the case, because Paul, who was possibly the best known and the most respected pastor in the early church, he wrote these letters to help guide Pastor Timothy and Pastor Titus as they led their respective churches, Timothy in Ephesus and Titus on the island of Crete. But a number of scholars have said that calling these three books the pastoral epistles may not quite catch the full essence of these letters. They say that these letters should instead be called the mentoring epistles, the mentoring epistles. And I can see why the scholars would say this. You see, Paul wasn't simply dispensing dry, practical pastoral information in these letters. No, most of what he shares with Timothy and Titus 
comes from the wisdom that he'd gained during his many decades laboring as a pastor. And I do say laboring. He'd learned a lot, and he was sharing a lot. Plus, his letters were clearly purposed. If you look carefully at them, they are clearly purposed to bolster these two young men as they took on the difficult responsibilities of leading their churches in Ephesus and Crete. And sharing your wisdom with someone and bolstering a younger leader's confidence is, at least to me, <laughs> that is the essence of mentoring. These are mentoring letters. And Paul's mentoring of Timothy and Titus absolutely resonates with me at this moment in the life of our church and in this stage of my ministry here at Grace. To be honest with you, I did a great deal of looking back during my sabbatical time. I've only been at Grace since before day one. I have a long perspective. But I also did a great deal of contemplating the future. While I was looking back, it became clear to me that those early days of grace, those first years of, I would essentially say, we were flying by the seat of our pants, those days were all about the future. They were all about looking ahead for what exciting things God wanted to do next through our community. As Barry pointed out last week, and as hard as it is to believe, the, the leadership team of Grace Church when we started was actually younger than all of the leaders that are leading this church today. It's hard to believe, but it's true. But I'm going to say this, we were not out on a limb by ourselves. We weren't. We were supported by an older generation of men and women who had already been down the planting of a new church road. You know that most of the older people who stood with us in those early days were the very same people who planted Faith Church, which was the church that planted us. They were with us, and they had faith in us. Last week, Barry named uh, two specific older couples. He named uh, Howard and Gyneth Luganville and Ron and Judy Bowman. They stood with us from day one. I can think of lots of other older folk, but I, I, Gene and Bev Schaefer come to mind. And Betty Van Campen comes to mind. They were people that let us lead but they were also continually present in our lives to buffer our excesses, which were many, and to share their wisdom and encouragement with us in the times when we were insecure and uncertain about what we were doing. Now, it's been a long time since those heady days of early grace, and the world is a very different place than it was when we started this whole thing. 
But as Barry said last week, and I agree with him 100% on this because I can feel it in my bones, there are a good number of similarities to what was happening in the early days of grace. And today, 30 years ago, we were moving into uncharted waters. We had brand new leadership, and yet we were driven by a mission that we could not escape. And that is so similar to what we find today at Grace Church. We are in uncharted waters. Barry's sermon last week touched on so many of the places where we cannot be certain about anything anymore. And we do have new leadership. And yet we are still driven by that same unescapable mission that we had back in the early days. So I think it's completely appropriate for us to be looking at First and Second Timothy this month because while these two letters are essentially look to the future letters, they were written by an older, wiser, accomplished man who was hoping to stir his successors into God's future. And this resonates with me. Now, please don't think that I'm comparing myself to Paul in any way. I am not even hinting at that. But this is why this resonates with me. Paul's ministry was not over, not by a long shot, but it was winding down. And Paul was making certain that he, as an older, more seasoned servant of Jesus, challenged these new, younger leaders to do as he says in verse 19 of chapter 1, to cling to their faith, to their faith in Christ, and to keep their consciences clean. This is what he's telling them to do, and I understand this completely. I don't feel that my ministry is over yet. But the time has come for me as an older and more seasoned pastor to challenge both you, the people of grace, but more specifically, and in particular, the new generation of leaders here at Grace, to cling to their faith and to live and serve in a manner that will keep their consciences clear and clean. And the passage we're looking at today speaks directly to this. Here, let's look at today's passages in 1 Timothy chapter 6. The primary verses today are 17 through 19, but we're going to be looking starting in about verse 5 through some of it. You can find that on page 1000 in the House Bible. I want to welcome everybody that's online while you're looking this up, and I want to say we're glad you're with us. There are a lot of you. Believe it or not, folks, there are way more of them than there are of us here in the room. And you need your Bibles, folks, okay? You need your Bibles at home. Again, it's 1 Timothy 6. I want you to know, as you're looking this up, that verses 17 to 19, which are our primary passages today, they are the final three verses in a much longer passage that essentially brings an end to Paul's letter. And this longer passage that these verses end have a theme, and that theme is this, that there are great dangers in focusing your life on gaining riches. Let me say that again. The theme of the last 
hunk of this letter to Timothy is there are great dangers in focusing your life on gaining riches. Now, I want to be clear, Paul never says ever anywhere in this passage or in any other place in any of his writings that having wealth or attaining wealth is bad or wrong or even to be avoided. He simply says, well, let's just read it. Now, look, look back. We're going to start in the middle of verse 5 of chapter 6. Up to this point, Paul has been talking to Timothy about the problems that come from false teachers. And at the end of verse 5, he says this, to them, speaking of false teachers, he says, a show of godliness is just a way to become wealthy. That's a strong statement that false teachers are just trying to get wealthy. But I have to say, it was true then, and I think it's still true today, that oftentimes people who are teaching false things are just out to get money. But then he goes on to verse 6 and says this, yet true godliness with contentment it is itself great wealth. After all, we brought nothing with us when we came into the world. And we can't take anything with us when we leave it. So if you have enough food and clothing, if we have enough food and clothing, let us be content. But people who long to be rich, and can I just stop for a second and tell you what rich meant in the first century? To be rich meant that you had enough resources that you didn't have to labor or work to make it through life. People who were… Most people had some task that they had to do to get through life, but the rich had, didn't have to get up and go work in any manner. So this is what we're talking about. The rich fall into temptation. It says people who long to be rich, which means they don't want to have to work, fall into temptation and are trapped by many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, and some people craving money have wandered from the true faith and pierced themselves with many sorrows." Now, goodness, guys, that's strong stuff. That's a strong warning. And I have to say, it would have been really relevant in the prosperous cosmopolitan city of Ephesus. Ephesus had a large diversity of social classes in that city. Um, just from Paul's writings, we know that there were slaves in Ephesus, there were peasants in Ephesus, there were, I would call them quasi-middle-class merchants in Ephesus, and then there was a group of people who were very wealthy. And we also know from Paul's letters that in the church we find slaves, and we find peasants, and we find merchants, and we find the very rich. And when you mix those people up, you are going to find people, probably plenty in the church, who were craving money to live like other people that they could see in the community, craving money to the point where they would do anything to get it. If this hadn't been the case, I don't think Paul would have even brought it up. Now, I love the way that 
the great Greek scholar Alfred Marshall. I asked this last night, is there anyone here who reads Alfred Marshall? There wasn't anybody last night. What? Good old Tim, he reads Alfred Marshall because he's like the man when it comes to translating things. And he translated the Greek word that gives us craving. That, that word is oregomenoi, oregomenoi. And he translates it. He doesn't translate it craving. He translates it, he translates it hankering after. Hank, I just love that. Now, I just, it's cool, you know, and he says that he's translated, people were hankering after money to the point that they'd do anything. And Paul says this hankering, this kind of craving will lead to many sorrows. Powerful statement, but he just goes away from it quickly, immediately turns to telling Timothy what he should crave. Here's my translation of verse 11, Okay. Timothy, I'm going to use uh, Dr. Marshall a little bit here, okay? Timothy, man of God, you need to run from evil things. You should be hankering after righteousness and hankering after a godly life and hankering after faith and hankering after love and perseverance and hankering after gentleness. And I've thought about this. If, if you are truly hankering after righteousness and godliness and love and such, it will keep your conscience clean. Your life will be such that you have nothing to be ashamed of. Oh, and, and one aside on this verse, in verse 11, our house Bible reads like this, but you, it says, but you, Timothy, are a man of God. So that how it's, that's how it starts, I believe but you, Timothy, are a man of God. The raw Greek actually reads like this, but you, O man of God. Calling someone a man of God wasn't something people threw around in the first century. It was a very revered title. In fact, there are only a handful of people in the Old Testament who are called a man of God. And the list is striking. It goes Moses. And it goes Samuel, David, Elijah, and Elisha. Now that's a list, isn't it? They're the only ones who get called a man of God. And can you imagine how affirming it would have been for Timothy to hear from Paul Paul, of all people, that he's calling him a man of God. To me, this is supporting, mentoring at its best. Paul, through this one little phrase, elevates Timothy to a level of, with Moses and David. I'm certain that it lifted Timothy's spirits, that Paul could see this in him. And can you imagine how it lifted his reputation in his own church, a church that it seemed to have a faction within it that said he's too young to lead this church. And then Paul says, he's a man of God. Boom. Once again, Paul finishes 
though, once he's finished telling uh, Timothy what he should hanker after, he does something. Uh, I know this uh, um, sounds weird, but he slides into preaching. Um, Paul is known for doing this. He, he'll say something, and then his mind will just go somewhere else. And this is one of those places. Um, he slides into something that's considered a grand doxology, but I think they're just being nice when they call it a doxology. I think he just got to preaching. Well, here, look how the subject changes here. He's starting in verse 12. He's told Timothy what he needs to be uh, hankering after, and then he says, fight the good fight for the true faith. Hold tightly to eternal life to which God has called you, which you have declared so well before many witnesses. I charge you before God, who gives life to all, and before Christ Jesus, who gave a good testimony before Pontius Pilate, that you obey this command without wavering. Then no one can find fault with you from now until our Lord Jesus Christ comes again. For at just the right time, Christ will be revealed from heaven by the blessed and only Almighty God, the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords. He alone can never die, and He lives in light so brilliant that no human can approach Him, no human eye has ever seen Him, nor ever will. All power and honor to Him forever. Amen. Can you see that? Paul's preaching. He got thinking about God and Jesus, and he just couldn't help himself. He gets preaching. And I bet that uh, once he'd finished this, and he's all done, and he takes a breath, and he just sits there silently for a minute just thinking about what he just said. And after about a minute or two of silence, his secretary, because, you know, Paul did not write the letters down. He had someone write them down for him. And I'm sure his secretary said something like, uh, we done here, Paul? <laughs> we done here? Uh, the scroll's almost filled. You got a little bit more space, but I got to tell you, that ending was pretty good, pretty good. Should we just wrap this letter up? And then I can hear Paul saying, no, no, I got one more thing to say to Timothy. And then Paul says this, verse 17, he says, teach. Now, I'm just going to say that is a really kind translation of the word. The word actually says order or charge. T tell them loudly. Teach those who are rich in this world not to be proud. Now, the word that gives us pride, proud here, it actually, it's the root of it actually means a high mountaintop. And this word means to look up at a mountaintop. Now, how does that fit with pride or being haughty? Well, this is the position of someone who just thinks they're better than everyone else. He says, don't hold your nose up to people. Don't act like you're a big shot. He's, Paul says, command people who are rich in the world, who do not have to work for a living. They're not to hold their noses up to the rest of the world. And they're not to trust their money, which is so unreliable. Their trust should be in God, who richly gives us all we need for our enjoyment. Just can I tell you the word that gives us enjoyment? Do you know what it means? Enjoyment. It means exactly that. 
and tell them to use their money to do good. They should be rich in good works and generous to those in need, always being ready to share with others. By doing this, they will be storing up their treasure as a good foundation for the future so that they may experience true life. And I just want to say one thing about this. This last verse about the future and good life and all that stuff is so often jacked up as to something that happens after we die when we get to heaven. This verse does not have anything to do with heaven. It is an absolutely earthbound statement here, and Paul is saying that generosity now leads to experiencing the best life now. Now. Now, I know that this letter was supposed to be a personal letter from one man to another man, but my guess is that when Timothy received it, The word got out that Paul had written Timothy a letter. And then some of the leaders in the church in Ephesus said, let us read that thing. And they read it, and then one of them said, you know, we need to read this thing in the church. Everybody needs to hear this. And then they read it aloud, and a word got out that it was out there, and people made copies of it, and they gave it to other churches, and eventually it was declared to be an authoritative message from God to the entire church. And the message that comes from God to the entire church could be wrapped up in this. True life now comes from being rich in good works and rich in generosity and rich in being ready to share with anyone who is in need. And I'm thinking that some, if not many, of the Christians in Ephesus had lost sight of the importance of sharing their gifts and their lives with other people. Again, if this hadn't been the case… Paul wouldn't have charged Timothy so strongly to teach the importance of being generous. And again, Paul was not commanding Timothy to teach against being wealthy, but he was commanding Timothy to remind those who are rich about two important things. First, avoid being proud and putting all your trust in your money. And second, use the opportunities that come from being wealthy for doing good, for helping others. In other words, make your good circumstances an opportunity for bringing good into other people's lives. Now, I know that… I know that what Paul says here is probably obvious. We hear it all the time. It's important to be generous. It's important to be generous. But like I said earlier, there must have been a good number of Christians in the Ephesian church who'd either forgotten or were discounting all of those stories about the outrageous generosity that had characterized the first church in Jerusalem. And can I say, yes, that early church in Jerusalem that we read about in the book of Acts, it was characterized by outrageous generosity of money. Yes, it was. But if you read the story carefully, you will see it was also characterized by an outrageous generosity of people giving their time and their their energies and their gifts and their service. And those are all equally important. And Paul's message is still one that I think is important for us today. I know from my own life, especially now that I'm older, 
It's so easy just to sit back and let other people be rich and good works and generosity, to let other people build a good foundation for the future. I've got laurels to sit on for a while. But just as in Paul's day, it will still take all of us giving our energies and our resources and our time to accomplish all that God has called us to do together here in this moment and in the moments to come for Grace Church. And I want, I want to speak directly to something related to this, uh, be, uh, this business of being ready to share with other people, but it's not related to money at all. And it's been a lesson to me from literally the first days of grace, 30 years of living under this lesson, when the entire idea of Grace Church was born, and Dave Rodriguez was first chosen by the leadership of Faith Church to be the senior pastor, that position was unlike anything else he'd ever held. I don't know if you know this, but he'd been the youth pastor at Faith Church. And overnight, he went from being the youth pastor, which is great, but it's not a big big deal in the panoply of pastoring, to being the senior, the senior pastor and the voice of a new, and I'm going to say this honestly, exploding Grace Community Church. And I don't have to tell you how tightly most senior pastors hold on to their pulpits. But from day one, Dave was generous with the wealth of influence and stature that he'd been given by being named the senior pastor of this church. From day one, he opened his pulpit to me at a time when I was just a landscaper who liked talking about the Bible. He didn't have to, have, he didn't have to do anything about that, and yet he did. His generosity with the wealth of his newfound position and influence made me being a pastor a possibility. And here's a lesson that I've never forgotten. Nothing that comes to me from the hand of God is mine to handle, to hold on to. Nothing that comes from God am I to clench fist with. It was generosity like Dave's in that time that led to a good foundation that over his 30 years as being senior pastor here, it brought life to thousands of people. And Grace Church still needs this kind of generosity in these days if we're going to build a strong foundation for the next 30 years. We are a community that's filled with the rich. We're rich in time. We're rich in influence. We're rich in wisdom, and yes, some of us are even rich in money. And everyone's generosity is going to be needed if we're going to build a good foundation that will make it possible for this church to continue to be a place where people meet Jesus, where they become disciples of Jesus, and then they get launched into the mission of God. That is what we are still about from day one. We're still all about it. You know, last week I came back from my sabbatical. And I will admit I had a case of what I have been referring to as emotional vertigo. 
But as it happened, the very first meeting that I went to when I came back was with the lead team, and they were talking about some of the general difficulties that come from the new responsibilities that they had at, to, at finding work and family life balance. And I asked one of the members of the team if they had anybody older in their lives that knew them well and loved them, and that if, was there someone who would help them get things right when their work life and their family life were all out of balance? And this person, who is one of your leaders, looked me right in the eyes and quietly said, that would be you. And in that moment, my vertigo leveled out. I don't know what the length of my tenure as a pastor here at Grace will ultimately be, but in the meantime, I pledge to you that I will strive to give my energies and my riches, however that may be defined, to carrying on, to building a good foundation for the next 30 years of grace, and I will work as hard as I can with the singular purpose of making grace a place where all who enter can experience true life. And this Timothy's request is that you would join me. Would you, as Paul recommended to his Timothy, would you please be rich in good works and be generous to those in need? Would you always be ready to share with others? Because by doing this, you will be storing up treasure as a good foundation for the future. And in doing these things, you will experience true life now. Can we do this together? Would you pray with me? Father, what a joy it is to be here with these people. What a joy it is to know that we have been commanded by You through Your Word, that we are to work together to represent You and to bring the kind of change that brings joy to Your heart to this broken world. I pray that You'll make us a community of people who are willing to follow You wherever You take us and that we'll be willing to do whatever you ask of us so that many others in our community can find true life. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for watching, but don't stop there. We want you to find community at Grace Church, and the first step in doing that is going to gracechurch.us hub. There you'll find other sermons, details about upcoming events, and other important announcements. And make sure you subscribe to our channel so you don't miss out when we post something new. Thanks again for watching. We'll see you next time.